Well, last week, last Sunday, we did a message on Isaiah 53. And I always leave meat on the bone when I go to Isaiah 53. And I don't ever get through as much as I'd love to get through. I'm not going to do that today. I've got a message on Isaiah 53, a second message. I decided I'm going to do a second message on Isaiah 53. That's not going to happen today. And it might be good that it won't happen today because I'll have uh, my, uh, some things I want to do with that message, uh, you know, a little bit more honed in. Uh, but I want to talk because the, we, we look at the crucifixion before we looked at the resurrection because the crucifixion happened first. Amen? Obviously, if you're rising from the dead, you died. Well, how did he die? He died for our sins. Amen? So uh, we look at what he did for our sins. But we looked at Isaiah chapter 53. I really encourage you to, if you missed that message, I encourage you to listen to it. Because that you're, it'll make your faith soar. Written about 700 years before Christ actually came and fulfilled these prophecies in Isaiah 53. And I talk about things, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to get into that and just talk about what we talked about, but we already talked about it, and I want to make sure I get in this message, but I do want to say this, there, the, the God said from the beginning, I mean, there was always a plan to send it the Savior, amen? I mean, one of the clearest early prophecies is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right, regarding Christ and Satan, and how Satan would bruise his heel, right, but the seed of the woman, the Messiah, would crush his head, Amen? And Jesus, through the cross, crushed Satan's head. But it wasn't like something easy to do, okay? A lot of times we can't get our brains around. We just think, a lot of people in the world, when they think that Jesus died on the cross, of course they think that's a horrifying way to die, to hang on a cross and be killed. But they don't know the half of it. They don't even know the tenth of it. They don't realize what Jesus went through on the cross to redeem us. And I'm afraid to say that many Christians don't realize what Jesus went through and the pain and anguish and distress that he went through on the cross. And if they did, I think our appreciation of what he had done for us would soar and our love for him would grow. And I'm always praying, you know, God help my brothers and sisters love you more. Help them understand as Paul prayed. It's a model prayer for us. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. So I like to look at his prayer life. And I see Paul praying, you know, or in Ephesians chapter 3, he prays that we might understand the width, the depth, the, the length, right? Uh, the height of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. He wants us to understand more how much God loves us. Amen? amen. He loved us, we know, from the, to the uttermost and the guttermost. Amen? amen? And it's an amazing amount of love. He wants us, and that comes by divine revelation, by the Holy Spirit. So I could even share things which are from the Holy Spirit, from the Word, which we'll do. But you have to open your heart up to what He's done and think about it. Ponder it and allow the Holy Spirit to give you a greater and greater revelation of his great love for you. Now, it's amazing because all these sacrifices in the Old Testament, so many of them pointed right to the cross. You know what Jesus Christ would do for us on the cross. Uh, if you went to the temple, it was a bloody temple on the inside because there was all these sacrifices, all pointing to, to Christ. And when Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They were anticipating his coming. And it's interesting, though, there's so many aspects of the passion, of what he went through and everything leading up to it and during that the, the week leading up to it and, and, and Gethsemane and the cross and that you could take any of those things and expound on them for long periods of time. So it's, easy, it's, it's hard sometimes. It's beautiful because there's so much there. But uh, so for me, the challenge is, okay, Lord, what do I focus on this Sunday, you know? And I want to focus on something that really, really uh, moves me, and I hope moves you, is that, as I said, people don't realize what Jesus went through on the cross, but a lot of people don't realize, and I'd say most Christians don't realize, the anguish that Jesus, I'm going to say, probably 99% of Christians don't understand, don't even begin to understand the anguish and the pain to the degree that it went, that Jesus experienced before the cross. And I think if we can get one another to understand that more, we'll appreciate our Lord and Savior more. Amen? And some do understand what I'm going to share, and it's always good to get a, just meditate upon it, get a deeper understanding of it as well. 
But it's interesting, in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus cried. You don't have to turn there, but you can because I'm just going to reference it. But I'm going to have you turn to verses too, but you turn whatever verses you want. He's crying out on the road to Jerusalem. And what he's, he's saying, he's, he's saying, how great is my distress? Luke chapter 12, verse 50. How great is my distress? That's an que- interesting question. He's asking, why does he ask that question? It's, you could say it's rhetorical. How great is my distress? It's so great. Now you're talking about the Son of God, okay? The distress that he went through and endured would kill us, okay? How great is that distress that I'm going through? Now Jesus talked about darkness. He said, make sure the light in you is not darkness. And then he said, how great is that darkness? Sometimes what people consider light is really darkness. Like in the New Age movement. Satan comes an angel of light, and it's really darkness. He said, watch out that the light that is in you is not darkness. Many in the New Apostolic Reformation and that are chasing false miracles and stuff, they think they're in the light, but they're in great darkness. And, and, and those kinds of questions by Jesus always startle me. How great is that darkness? This startles me in a different way, because I never thought about this one in, in the context of how great is my distress. And I want to answer or let the scriptures answer some of that question. In John 12, 27, just as he is approaching, just about to go to the cross, Jesus says, and this is heavy, he says, my, he says, now my soul is troubled. His innermost being was incredibly troubled. Everybody here, if you're, even a little kid, could relate to feeling trouble, right? But everybody here who has felt, has felt trouble and distress in their heart, in their soul, there are times where we have incredible amounts of stress in our lives. We're facing excruciating decisions or anticipating something that is really intense that can be very hurtful or painful. Uh, never, nobody ever has experienced it to the level that Jesus did, though. I can guarantee you that. And as I go through the scripture, we'll be able to appreciate that more and more. Now, I want you to go to Mark, because in chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verse 32. Mark 14, 32. And it's interesting here. Mark 14, 32. Now it's interesting here because what I've been talking about, as he's on the road and he cries out, my soul is, how great is my distress? You know what he's saying in John? The way in Mark, now he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now he's praying. He's asking his disciples to pray with him. And as his disciples are praying, they're falling asleep. Just as they're boasting that they would never deny him, right? They're all falling asleep. And he'll say to them later, could you not pray one hour with me? And I really believe that there's a a little bit of a rebuke there. Could you not pray one hour with me? It's not just saying, couldn't you just stay up for an hour? It's saying, couldn't you pray for me for just an hour when you said you're really going to go to prison and death for me? You you won't never deny me? But you couldn't even pray for an hour because our strength isn't in ourselves. And that's why we need to pray and seek God. Well, he's in Gethsemane, and I'm emphasizing this because he's at the worst time of his life. He's already said, "How how distressed am I? And the disciples are just, well, you're Jesus, you know? We've seen you calm the storm. We've seen you heal lepers, raise the dead, heal the blind, right? Give the deaf hearing. You're Jesus, you know? You can endure anything. So they don't really contemplate and realize that he is in this huge trial because they're not really understanding that he's even going to die for their sins. Every time he references that and mentions that, that he's going to fulfill the scripture, kind of goes over their head. Because keep in mind, the Messianic hope for many of the Jews at the time, they were hoping somebody would kick the rear ends of the Romans who were ruling them. They wanted someone to whoop up on the Romans. And they were like, and they knew Jesus was going to rule and reign. They just didn't understand how all was going to come about. And they're just, you know, falling asleep, snoring away. But we read something quite interesting in verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And that means it speaks of an olive press. An olive press. There was an olive press there. I've been in Gethsemane. If you could ever make an Israel trip with us, it'll change your life. Amazing. Beautiful. I mean, those trees there are, I've never seen such 
thick olive trees. Some say they go right back to the time that Jesus was there. Probably not. Most believe they were just maybe planted, two, those are like 203, two, 300 years or so, or four maybe, old, or just after Jesus, which is still a long time for trees to live, right? 15, 16, 1700 years. It's still this huge olive grove overlooking the Kidron Valley. You can see the temple. It looks like you reach out and touch the Temple Mount across the Kidron Valley. Mind-boggling. But you'd have an olive press where there were olives. How many like olive oil? Olive oil is really good for you, by the way. Watch out for the stuff you buy. It says olive oil, but it's got canola and everything else in it instead. Just a little olive oil. But if you drink a tablespoon of olive oil a day or two, it's a superfood. Okay, just so you know that. It can save your life down the line. Okay, I'm going to get off on that. You know, but, but anyway, olive oil is amazing, especially from that region, Mediterranean. But they would crush those olives to bring forth the beautiful oil. Well, Jesus is being crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a picture. He's being crushed. In fact, he won't ultimately be crushed until he's on the cross, but he's already feeling the pressure of bearing the sins of the world. So it's really interesting when you think about it. When you think of Jesus, in fact, Isaiah 53.10, we read it last week. Do you remember what it said? It says that it, it pleased, but it pleased the Father to crush him and to make him grieve if he was willing to give himself as a guilt offering. He would see his offspring and his days would prosper. And he would see the good hand of the Lord prosper. Now it's interesting. It talks about him being crushed. Crushed. And that's what would happen in the, in the in Garden of Gethsemane. The olives would be crushed. But that's where he is for prayer. And the scriptures tell us that this is where he would go to pray. Do you have a place of prayer? You should have a place of prayer. You know? You should have two or three, perhaps, places of prayer. You know? Whether it's out in the wilderness or hiking in the hills. A beautiful scene, snow on our mountains up above Simi. I think they're probably just about gone maybe today. I saw it yesterday. But they've been here for a few, few weeks now, that, that snow a month. Beautiful to pray outside. Beautiful pray in a prayer closet. It doesn't have to literally be a closet, but a place of, you know, of where you can have privacy. But we should always be praying. But Jesus had a place to pray that he liked to pray, and it was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm not sure exactly why he liked to pray in that specific spot other than the beauty, other than it may be reminding him of his mission because olives were crushed there, and oil coming out of the crushed uh, olives is a picture throughout the Scripture of the Holy Spirit, or because he overlooked the Kidron Valley and could see the temple from there as well, and it gave him a picture of his mission. I think that had something to do with perhaps. But he's there to pray and seek the Father because there was creation around him, and it reminded him of the Father's hand, perhaps. I think all those things might have been in play. But it's interesting. Verse 32 says, They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be what? Very distressed. Now, he already asked the question before this in Luke 12, 50, 50, how great is my distress? It was already great. Now, whatever was great distress, now it moves to becoming very distressed and troubled. Okay, the words are, are there's another word added. He's distressed. He's troubled. Now, how troubled, how distressed is he? Look at verse 34. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of what? Death. Do you think he was just exaggerating there or do you think he's being serious there? If he was greatly distressed, how greatly distressed is he? And now he's very distressed. And the scriptures tell us that he says he's grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He's at the point of death. I don't doubt that at all. Not he just feels like it. He doesn't say, I feel this way. He goes, I'm grieved to the point of death. In other words, he could die from the amount of stress that he's going through. And people do die for stre from stress. Greatest killer in our country still to this day is, is because of stress and, and, and what have you. It's, you know? It has, hearts fail people all over the place because of, you know, stress. 
And Jesus said in the end times, when, people, when the impending judgment or wrath of God comes, the hearts of many will fail them for fear of things coming on the earth. Wow. People die of stress all the time. But he's at the point where he's not, he's not old. Man. He's around 33 years old or so. And, but here's such a magnitude of stress that he's feeling and that he's undergoing that he says it's deeply grieved to the point of death. Now, the word grieved there is uh, perlupapas. And that word uh, perlupas is translated deeply grieved sometimes, overwhelmed with sorrow. Then IV translates it this way. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. The Christian Standard Bible is, then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Swallowed up in sorrow. And that he's, he's enveloped in, in de- enveloped in depression, tense uh, sorrow. And it's interesting because he's experiencing this deep anguish. What, what's the unthinkable thing that could cause such intense pain that he's so stressed that he's at the point of death? What in the world is he contemplating that would bring such anguish? Well, go to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Many don't think of going to Hebrews chapter 5 when you think of the passion and what Jesus went through. I think it's a great place to go. This specific verse, I think, is quite revealing. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying. So, he is deeply stressed. And he's not internalizing it only. I'm sure he did to a degree prior to this time. But now he's vocalizing it as he's praying to the Father. He's crying out to the Father. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with what? Loud crying. Have you ever heard a a man cry very loud? He's in public. Okay? Okay. That's pretty intense for Jesus to be doing this. Something really intense is going on. Loud crying and tears to, one, to the one able to save him from death. He's crying to the Father who's able to save him from death. And he was what? He was heard because of his piety, his holiness. Isn't that interesting? Now, different commentators will say different things about this verse as far as how was he saved from death? He certainly wasn't saved from dying on the cross, was he? No. It's not talking about him being saved from dying on the cross. I believe personally he was at the point of death right there because that's what the scriptures say. And God preserved him through the trial that he was going through because God's plan was for him to go to the cross and die for us. Amen. What? intense thing is he contemplating, but it's because of what's coming up, right? What he's anticipating going through that he's distressed to the point of death and he's bawling, he's crying, Father! And he's crying and they're still sleeping through that. I know it's late. I know it's, they've had a long day, but they're all sleeping and he's bawling before the Father. God, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And it's interesting because Luke says something quite interesting in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. He lets us know specifically why he feels anguish, intense pain to the point of death. And why he is crying and hurting so, so much. Luke chapter 22 verse 40. When he arrived, that is Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. I love that. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, this is what he was praying, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. 
So he's praying. What's the concern? We're being told now what he's concerned about. Now, we're not told exactly what that cup is yet, but what has him under such deep, why does he feel swallowed up with sorrow, overwhelmed with grief to the point that he's going to die? Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. I mean, I, if I don't have to face this cup, if I don't have to drink from this cup, right on cue, Tori. Yours was easier, though. If I don't, she was taking a drink. If I don't have to drink from this cup, basically is what he's saying, let it pass. Now, we're talking about one who doesn't fear anything, it seems, who stands off against the devil himself and says, get behind me, Satan. Amen? who stands up to the rulers of this world system, amen? But here, he's tormented with pain to the point of dying. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In other words, Father, if you're saying no, it can't be done. If people can't be saved without me, without me going to the cross... Your will be done. But if there's any other way that people could be saved, where I don't have to take this cup upon myself, take the cup from me. You see, but there was no other way. Because we're, we know we can't be saved by works, right? That we do. By works of righteousness. There's no eightfold path or pilgrimage we can make to Mecca or anything like that that can save us. Those are our lives from the evil one. Can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps to heaven. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, if there was a law that could have been given by which God could save us, he would have given it. Amen. The law that God gave us doesn't save us, right? It shows us our sin. And it shows us God's perfection and his standard of righteousness. And it confirms that we are rotten to the core, that we are wickedly depraved sinners in rebellion to God, children of wrath, alienated from God, each going our own way, being little gods, deserving his judgment, deserving his wrath. That's what his law shows us. It can't save us. We can't save ourselves. In Revelation chapter 5, you know, there's nobody that can open the book and loose its seals and bring forth and initiate God's plan of judgment and ultimately apply his redemption to anybody that will come to him at the end of days and be saved. And John says, not on earth or under the earth or in heaven, no one was found. And John begins to weep greatly. It's a lost cause. And he should know better, right? But he forgets for a moment because nobody's coming and taking the scroll. But then he says he saw Jesus stand up at the right hand of the Father. Amen. He said he saw him, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He says he saw him as a lamb that had been slain. Even in heaven, Jesus still bears the wounds. I think that's powerful. And that's going to be that way for eternity because that's his resurrected body. And I don't know how disfigured he is still. I know the wounds are still there. Thomas, stick your fingers in my wound. Thomas falls, you know, the Lord of me, the God of me. Whoa! And his face was more marred than any man's. And he had no beauty that we should be attracted to him. When they saw how he was just being destroyed, before he even went to the cross, he was whipped more than anybody, perhaps, because they tried to make an example of him and whoop him so bad. Pilate had him whipped so bad because Pilate knew he was innocent. And he was hoping they'd say, okay, he's had enough, let him go. But no, crucify him. His face was marred. Remember, they tore his beard out. Remember, they put a bag over his head and kept punching and punching and punching him in the face over and over again. Tell us who's doing this. If you're a prophet, who hit you? So his face was bludgeoned bad. And when he's resurrected form, what is called before the cross or before the resurrection, I should say, his face being more marred than any man's, well, that would be a turnoff to people. If he still has the scars there, it instantly makes him the most beautiful person, looking person you've ever seen. Because you see, his visage has been marred because of our sin, and it speaks of his incredible love for us. Amen? 
profound, deep love. And every time you see Jesus, whether there's just a few scars on his face or little or many or what or none, I don't know, but you'll see the wounds, the, the nail print still, amen? And you'll see the most beautiful person because you'll constantly see this is God. And this is because of his love for me, amen? But he had to get through Gethsemane because Satan, remember when Satan tried to tempt him? Bow before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He shows him the kingdoms of the world a moment of time. Shows him everything in a moment of time. Jesus says, no, get behind me, Satan, right? So what's really heavy about this is it says in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 or so there, that Satan left him for a season. Satan came back. It says during this time of his life when he was going through this, Jesus called, talked about the prince of darkness and that this hour of darkness, Satan was all over him trying to stop him from completing his mission. But notice he says, Father, if you are willing, verse 42, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven, now this is heavy, remember it says God heard him, right, and saved him from death, right? Well, how did, he, how did he save him? He's at the point of death. His disciples aren't there. We need to encourage each other, by the way, when we go through trials, right? His disciples are falling asleep. Look at verse 43, though. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. He was at the point of death. Are you hearing me? He's crying out to the Father. He's contemplating taking that cup upon himself, bearing the wrath of God against the sins of the world all in one person, Get your head around that. We can't, I can't get my head around it fully, for not even close. The, the degree that I can, I just fall before him and want to worship him more. He's at the point of death contemplating this. Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. It's not possible that we be saved without him dying. So God sends an angel, and the angel strengthens him. Can you imagine that, a supernatural being appearing? Moses and Elijah, two human beings, appeared to him. And they said some pretty amazing things. They talked about the death which he would accomplish. That's, and they're encouraging him. Well, here it's an angel. So God was using things to encourage him. God the Father, that is. Wow. Are you guys with me today? Verse 43, the angel appeared to him, strengthening him. Verse 44, and being in agony, being in agony, even after he's strengthened though, guys, now he's stronger, but now he's still in agony. He was praying very fervently. He's praying very intensely. And Luke, now keep in mind, this is really interesting because Luke is a doctor. We're told that he was a physician. And it may be that Luke, this might be the reason of the synoptic Gospels, even, and including John, the, the four Gospels, that Luke is the only one that records this. And I believe it may be because he's a doctor and the Holy Spirit used him in this way. And he being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat, his sweat, if you looked at his sweat, it became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Meaning when you looked at his sweat, it was not just regular sweat. It looked like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, this is intriguing, of course, but keep in mind, this has to do with the context of being grieved to the point of death, being strengthened now by an angel, but still being in agony and praying fervently. And even after he's strengthened, he's not dying right here, but he's close, and his sweat looks like blood dropping to the ground. Now, it's interesting because Luke probably had no reference for that in his medical journals. Why? Because it's incredibly rare. In fact, some have read that. Some liberals and so forth saying, oh, that's made up from, I'm sure, in the past, before they discovered hematidosis. Uh, that, ah, that was probably just thrown in there. That doesn't happen, you know? Well, now nobody could say that. Because now we know they have over 100 cases in forensic science of people oozing blood out of their pores. And guess what? It just happens to happen when people are in the most incredible stress facing. Sometimes it happens when people face execution 
Yet it rarely happens. You don't know anybody that probably happened to. Because they only have, out of the billions of people that have lived, there's only just over 100 cases where they've actually documented this. In fact, uh, online, uh, an online encyclopedia says, hematidosis, also called blood sweat, is a very rare condition in which a human sweats blood. Blood usually oozes from the forehead, from the nails, uh, umbilicus, and other skin surfaces, in addition to oozing from mucocutaneous surfaces causing nosebleeds, blood-stained tears. The episodes may proceed by the episodes may be preceded by intense headache and abdominal pain. In some conditions, the secreted fluid is more dilute and appears to be blood-tinged, while others may have darker, bright red secretions resembling blood. All Luke knows is it looked like blood. He was sweating blood. It looked like drops of blood coming out of his sweat. But they didn't have words like hemorrhoidosis back then, you know. Effect on the body is weakness and mild to moderate dehydration from the severe anxiety. Listen to this. From the severe anxiety and both blood and sweat loss. This all fits what Jesus was going through, doesn't it, guys? Dermatological research notes the presence of hemorrhoidosis in people waiting, awaiting execution. He knows he's going to the cross. It's not just any execution. Because 99.9999999% of people waiting execution, as horrible as that would be, don't go through this. But they found rare cases when they find this. It's people, sometimes that they're waiting execution. It has also been uh, proposed as possible explanation for Jesus' agony in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. That's from the popular Wikipedia site. And it's just interesting that it's a known fact that this thing does happen. There's so much evidence that this is the Word of God. Amen? I mean, where would that just come up if this didn't happen, you know? Uh, there's so many things that I believe, and I believe that's one of the many evidences that we're dealing with historical reality. Because Luke wouldn't probably be aware of hemorrhoidosis when you have just over 100 cases of it over the billions of people that have existed through life, and it wasn't a common thing. But Jesus is going through that. And the capillaries under your skin just pop because of the intense, I mean, these little tiny, tiny, tiny vessels pop because of this intense stress. And he's oozing, and he's praying fervently. It's springtime. It's a little warm, perhaps, even that evening. We don't know how warm it was. But it could have even been cool. But he's sweating, and he's bleeding, and he's crying, you know. He asked three times, you know. So now I ask you, what in the world is so intense that Jesus is so concerned about that he is deeply overwhelmed and swallowed up by sorrow to the point of death, where even after he's strengthened by an angel, he's still praying fervently, and then blood starts oozing from him. Can you imagine if the angel didn't show up? God became a man. He became a real man. We're not dealing with Gnosticism where he just appeared as a man. He took on human flesh. He's going through real human trauma as a man, but also as the God-man. Now, what is he facing to the point of death? And also, what's so intense that he's sweating sweat with mixed with blood, you know? Well, he continues to pray. He prays three times, Father, if possible, let this cup pass for me. But not my will, but yours will be done. All three times the Father didn't say, there's another way. Okay, you know what? You don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus delighted. You guys understand? Jesus loved his Father. He'd been with him from eternity past all the time. And he said he, he delighted in doing the Father's will. In Hebrews, in the volume of the book that is written of me, he says, I delight to do my Father's will. He loved doing his Father's will. But now he's really, really struggling. But he says, not my will, but yours be done. But going through with this, he's like, you know, it's kind of interesting too, because on one hand, God knows everything. But on the other hand, when God became a man in the person of Jesus, we're told that Jesus said, 
No one knows the day and the hour. Not even the Son. Only the Father in heaven. It's like, how is it that only the Father knew the day and the hour and Jesus didn't know the day and the hour? Well, some will say, oh, well, he ceased to be God. You know, he laid his divinity aside in the kenosis in Christ. In Philippians 2, he just became a man. He was just a man. No, he's still God. But he also is fully man. And we know he's fully God still. Because on earth, they say, you know, they're trying to, you know, who do you think you are? He says, before Abraham was, I am. He is the I am. And he says, you'll know. He says, you'll know. He talked about his resurrection to his apostles. You'll know that I am when these things are fulfilled. Then when they go to arrest Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Christ? I am. And what do they all do? (laughs) Fall down. Because there's an explosion of his power. He just reveals his divinity a bit. He's always God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never ceased to be God. He died as a God-man. But he was also a man. And in one way, it says, John 2 says he knew the thoughts of all men. He's God, even in John 2. Yet there's certain things. He didn't lay aside his divinity, but he laid aside acting on certain divine attributes which he could have acted upon. He could have just said, well, I don't want to walk over there. I don't want to walk over there, just fly over there, hyperspace. He could have done that stuff, but he didn't, man. He, he lived as a man. He, he thirsted, he, he hungered, he was tired, he was fatigued. Amen? And I believe he had access to any knowledge he wanted because I believe he still was God, but he didn't retrieve that knowledge. How many of you remember things from elementary school, but if you keep thinking about them, you start talking to an old friend from elementary school, something that happened in class, something you haven't thought about since it happened until that person brings it up, or maybe in junior high or high school, and then you're thinking about it, you haven't thought about it for years, and you never thought about it after it happened, but now you think about it, and then you remember certain things. Oh, and then this happened. It's in your memory bank, right? But you don't retrieve everything at once from your memory bank. Christ understood. Christ knew all things, but he didn't retrieve all things at once because he came to live as a man, amen? Even though he was still God. So what's interesting to me here is he's suffering. And I I say that to you because when he's going through the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows God's will. He knows God's plan. He knows what he's there for. But he's also not retrieving everything at once. And he's suffering as a man. And I want to show you something in John 18, which I think is interesting. Go to verse 11. This is after that Jesus has a was strengthened by the angel, and he prayed fervently in his sweating blood, and, and Peter's going to take his sword, you know, and he is going to strike the high priest's servant, a man named, by the name of Malchus, and he's going to take off, lop off an ear of Malchus. Can you imagine having that testimony? Yeah. Jesus, uh, one of his disciples, cut off my ear, and then Jesus stuck it back on, and here it is. I don't even know if there'll be a scar. I don't know how that works. John 18, verse 11. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it. This is as he's getting up. This is Gethsemane. Now they've come to arrest him because he'll be crucified. The disciples don't realize what's going on, but he knows exactly what's going on. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck his high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, now isn't this interesting? So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. What did he say? The cup. That's right. The cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He's resolved to drink from that cup. He's saying, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Third time, Father, if possible, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He's strengthened. He's sweating blood. All this is going on. He comes to get arrested. He, wake, he gets up fully resolved. Peter, put your sword back. Shall I not drink from the cup the Father's given me? He's fully resolved. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Be thankful. You wouldn't be here today if you didn't, by the way, right? Your whole life would be different. In fact, you'd be on your way to hell with no way out. Well, this is a gnarly cup. By the way, go to Matthew chapter 20. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20. And 
this Jewish mother of John and James, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, she really, you know, mothers want wonderful things for their children, and she wants her sons, one to be on Jesus' right hand and one to be on his left hand. And she makes requests for this, you know. And we read in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now they'll partake of his cup, the results of it. They'll also partake of persecution that he'll go through. They'll enter into some things. But they won't drink the cup the way he is going to drink the cup. Okay? Now, what in the world are we talking about when we talk about the cup that made Jesus sweat with blood, that brought him to the brink of death that God saved him from? We're talking about the cup. We're not talking about just some physical pain on the cross, which is horrible. horrible. None of us want to go through that, right? Horrible that is. We're talking about something far more intense. We're talking about the cup of God's wrath. In fact, listen to Psalm chapter 75, verse 7. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Listen to this. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth. Listen to this. Surely all the wicked of the earth, that's everybody, by the way, all have sinned, must drain and drink down its dregs. The dregs are the heavier elements in the wine that would go to the bottom. And you're going to drink everything you deserve. You see, keep in mind, God is a fully righteous, holy, perfect God. Amen? Amen. He's perfect. Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Peter says, be holy as God. Your God is holy. Guess what? There's no way, guys that they're going, we can endure that. You talk about great anguish? Yeah, there's going to be great anguish. In fact, the scriptures say in Psalm 7, 11, 12, and by the way, wrath is what we deserve because of our sin. God's righteous is exactly what we deserve from a holy God when we've transgressed his holy law. In Psalm 7, 11, it says, God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turns not, he will, he will wet his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for him the instruments of death. Wow. Psalm 11, verse 6 and 7 says, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and a horrible tempest. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? This is the portion of their cup. Listen to this. This is the portion of their cup. You catch that? For the righteous Lord loves righteousness. Wow. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 15 tells us this. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations of whom I send it to drink it. Wow. Isaiah says in Isaiah 51, 17, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Now, Jeremiah, when he's told, he's been witnessing to Judea, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes had already been taken captive 150 years or so earlier by the Assyrians. God spared Judea because they were not living as wickedly as those in the northern kingdom who had all these wicked kings. And the Assyrians were the ruling empire of the time, and they took all these tribes from the north captive. Southern kingdom, like, we're so righteous, they're thinking, then they became more wicked than their sister, we're told in the north. And they're living these wicked lives and Jeremiah is used by God warning them that you need to repent or his wrath is going to come upon you for 20 years. He warns and warns and warns. And they mock him. They laugh at him. They throw him in a pit. You know, they want him dead. There's all these false prophets prophesying peace when there is no peace to the wicked, it says in the scripture. 
And they're prophesying all this false peace. And then guess what? About 604 or so, 20 years later, Jeremiah is given this declaration from God. He's telling people, he's mixing in a bowl. Here, drink this cup. Of, drink this cup. What would you do if that came to you? And he's saying, drink. This is what's going to happen. This nasty concoction, right? You're probably like, no, I'm, I'm good. You know, I don't need it. Well, guess what? You're going to be made to drink it. And if he said, he goes on to say in that passage, if they say, no, we're not going to drink it, say, you have to drink it. It's coming. And they're thinking, no, we're safe. The Assyrians spared us. The Assyrians aren't against us. And guess what? Right at that time when Jeremiah's given this message, you're going to drink. Guess what? The Assyrians, what happened to the Assyrians? The Babylonians were whooping up on them. And they whooped up on the Egyptians. Necho got his rear end whooped. They left a strewn of, of, of different weaponry as they fled back to Egypt. And the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar were taking over. And he was saying, give this to the nations because guess what? The Babylonians are going to whoop up on everybody. God's judgment was coming through the hand of the Babylonians. And Jerusalem would be sacked. And God's people would be taken captive into Babylon. And his judgment was coming. So this is a picture of God's wrath Probably the most incredible, fear, fearful picture of the wrath, this, this cup of wrath, is in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Let's go there. Verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 9. This is when people are being told not to take the mark of the beast by an angel. The, man, the number of the Antichrist, the right hand of their forehead. Look how the cup is described, guys. Then another angel, a third one, followed him, them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of what? The wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in what? Full strength in the cup of his anger. In the what? cup of his wrath or cup of his anger depending on your translation, same thing and he will be tormented here's what the cup is like, he'll be tormented with what? Fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. In other words, don't fall away. Don't take the mark of the beast. Don't believe anybody who tells you you can take it. Now, and this is amazing, guys, because in Revelation chapter 19, look what happens to the beast and the false prophet. When Jesus comes back, Revelation 19, 11, Jesus comes back on his white horse. Awesome. And then you go to the end of that chapter. He comes, he's king of kings, lord of lords. He comes with the armies of heaven. And in verse 20, it says, And the beast was seized. And they were saying, Who can make war with the beast? Well, guess who can make war with him, man? Here's the answer Jesus. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So they're thrown alive. Well, guess what? You know, some people falsely teach that, that you know, if you go to hell or the lake of fire, oh, well, you're just, you know, you just cease to exist. You're just, you're just burned up. You don't exist anymore. Now, if the Bible taught that, I'd be all for whatever the Bible, I want whatever the Bible teaches. And if I've ever looked to, if, 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 if I could find out that I was wrong about my understanding of a doctrine, it'd be on hell. If, I, if, I, if, if you say, if you're wrong on one doctrine, what would it be? Well, eternal hell. But I want what God says because what God says is best, although it's a grievous subject. But guess what? It's real. And guess what? It's a false teaching to say that you're just annihilated because guess what? These guys are thrown there, and then what happens? Satan's bound for a 1,000 years, right? Then after a 1,000 years over, and these guys have been, were thrown there a 1,000 years earlier because he's let loose to deceive the nations again, and we're going to be reigning with Christ during that time in, in, in Jerusalem with our resurrected bodies. But then guess what? Then after the thousand years, Satan's let loose. Then Satan is thrown in the lake of fire. Look at what it says in verse 10 about Satan being thrown in the lake of fire in chapter 20 of Revelation. And the devil who deceived them was what? Thrown in the lake of fire and brimstone where the what? There the beast and the false prophet are also. They are still there over a thousand years later. Are you with me? 
Don't ever believe the Jehovah Witness doctrine and this false teaching that you just get annihilated. People don't fear God as much as they ought to fear God when you start saying, oh, you just get annihilated. Well, some people say, oh, I'll just live it for that day. I'll just get annihilated. Then later, I'll just party hardy. You know, no. It's more than annihilation, man. You suffer the wrath that you deserve for all the wicked things you've done against God. The, the, Satan's throne there where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they, not just him, will be what? Tormented day and night for what? Ever and ever as clear as day. There's a book by a guy named Fudge that tries to explain away texts about eternal punishment. He couldn't explain these away. Oh, it's just apocalyptic language. Some people say, no, this is the word of God, guys. Okay. Don't tame down what God says for the sake of accommodating your message to people because you don't want to offend people. Amen. That's why people don't talk about repentance. That's why people don't talk about hell. That's why believers, pastors even, don't talk about the cross or what Christ's substitution or atonement for our sins because they don't want to offend people. We need to be offended. Amen. Amen. Because we are offensive to God and we're sinful and we need to repent and make sure we get right with God. Amen. Now, it's interesting. The Lord talks about his cup of wrath. He talks about mixing it with spices. And in ancient times, they, and even today people do it, they would mix spices and they mix certain things into it, sometimes even drugs, to make it a stronger concoction. And God's saying, guess what? He's going to mix full strength, right? It's unmixed. So it's not mixed with water, amen? But there's places where it talks about spices and so forth, the dregs and all that. Well, guess what? Jesus, when he was going to go to the cross when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Brothers and sisters, do you realize what he was contemplating? He was contemplating this cup of wrath that is poured out on all the wicked, but absorbing it all as one person, the intensity of the sins of the world, the punishment for the sins of the world upon himself. Do you get it? Not just your sin. That would be bad enough. Mine would probably be worse, okay? I admit I'm a sinner, man, saved by grace. But guess what? He's going to bear not just our sins, but the sins of Adolf Hitler, the sins of, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, sins of, you know, Stalin, sins, the sins of Chairman Mao, the sins of everybody, Charles Manson, now Lester Crowley. He's gonna, no, he didn't taste the cup for everyone. Thus saith the word of God, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, says Jesus tasted death for everyone. everyone. He drank from that cup for everyone, which is good news. Why? Because you don't have to wonder whether or not Jesus tasted the cup for you. Amen? Amen. But that's the deal, guys. And what was mixed into that cup? What were the ingredients of this cup of wrath, the guilt of the world? Isaiah 53, 6 says, Upon him was laid the iniquity of us all. Everybody's guilt. The guilt, the guilt of all. Amen? 1 Peter 1, 24, who for in his own self he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He experienced the darkness of hell that we deserve. For three hours, it became dark. And that wasn't just physical torment on the cross. It became dark. And it was, that was the wrath of God falling on him. It wasn't a darkness that was projected at people. It was projected at his son. So experienced in a way, I believe others did not experience that darkness. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, he experienced alienation, a sense of separation. My God, my God, he cried out. Why hast thou forsaken me? This is the one that he's been with from eternity past. In what sense was he forsaken? In the sense that the Father's wrath, the very thing that, he's the only one that didn't deserve it, by the way, right? Amen. He's the only one that doesn't deserve it, on, who's ever lived. Mary was not without sin. She needed turtle doves to be sacrificed for her. She called Jesus, she called God her Savior, amen? amen? Everybody deserved the wrath of God, but he's the only one that's suffering it now at that, that point because it's all isolated on his son. I'm saying he becomes the, the object of God's wrath. He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The sheer pain of the crucifixion, the nails being pounded through his head, or his hands, I should say, his feet, the whippings, the bleedings, you know, all that he went through is poured into this cup. Bones are protruding from his skin. He says in Psalm 22, I could count my bones, you know. His body's been opened up. It's, he's marred beyond any man. The shame, he went through the shame. It says that he bore our shame in Hebrews chapter 12. He, the thirst of Hades, remember, even before people go to hell, remember the rich man's in Hades saying, send, send Lazarus over to tip, have him dip his finger in water and stick it on my tongue. I'm in torment in this flame. He's thirsty. The rich man, I thirst. What, what does Jesus say on the cross? I thirst. I thirst. 
He's experienced the hell that you and I deserve on the cross. Do you understand that, brothers and sisters? He's experiencing what we ought to be going through for all eternity. All is brought into a minuscule aspect of time compared to eternity. It all is infused upon him, brought upon him to be tormented in our place. And because he's infinite, because he's not just man, but he's the God-man, he's an infinite being, he can experience the infinite torture that we deserve in, in a period of time because he suffered in an infinite way because he's the infinite God. Amen? What an awesome God he is. I thirst. He experienced he experienced the full assault of Satan's power. Remember, even Job didn't experience the full assault of Satan's power. You could take everything from him. God said, just don't touch him. Then God says, okay, now you can touch him. Just don't kill him. On the cross, Satan's like all over him, man. Wow. Jesus said the, that the prince of the world, he cometh, John 14, 30. And boy, was he, had he come. He's experienced the wrath of God himself. Remember, in Isaiah 53.10, I mentioned that scripture earlier. It says, but it pleased God to crush him. He was being crushed by the wrath of the Father that we deserve because God is thrice holy. And it says, if he would be willing to give himself as a guilt offering, meaning he had a choice, and Jesus said, yes, I'm going to take from that cup. What a beautiful reality. What a beautiful reality. Jesus recognized that he had to be crucified for us. He said the Son of Man must be lifted up. He used that word must over and over again. Amen? And I'm telling you right now, if somebody says, well, there's other ways to God. You don't need to come through Jesus like the millions and millions of New Agers say today. Say no. You can quote scriptures and say no. You can say Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Or 1 Timothy 2.5, as Paul said, there's only one mediator between God and man. One, the man Christ Jesus, right? Who gave himself a ransom for all, verse 6. Or you can say what Peter said in Acts 4.12. There's no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved but the name of Jesus, amen? But you know what else you could say? You could say, no, I know there's only one way. Not only because the scriptures clearly say it over and over again, but because the Father did not answer Jesus' prayer by taking the cup from him. Because there's no way we could be saved unless he took the cup of wrath. And Buddha didn't take that cup of wrath for you. Muhammad didn't take that cup of wrath for you. Krishna didn't take that cup of wrath for you. We, that's why we love Jesus, man. That's why we exalt him above everybody and anybody. Amen? He deserves all the praise. He deserves all the glory and all the praise, guys. Amen. Now, Praise God, you guys. He offers us another cup. You could take, there's two cups you could choose from. The cup of wrath, which he took for you. And you say, no, I'm not going to accept your sacrifice. And you can experience that cup for all eternity. Or you could ex experience the cup of salvation. The cup of forgiveness. The cup that he gave them. And he took his to his disciples. And he said, he gave them the wine. And he says, this is the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. Take this in remembrance of me. Amen. Because he was going to pour out his blood on the cross. Because the, blood, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Because he was going to die in our place on the cross. Amen. Pay for our sins. And right before he gave up the ghost, you know what he said? Really, something really heavy. This is really heavy. He had already rejected a concoction of wine, which it says in Proverbs 31, that if someone's perishing, then they can have strong drink. Otherwise, no strong drink, no straight wine. But if they're perishing, give it to those who are perishing. So it's not for kings, but for those who are perishing. Because that way they could have some kind of, they went as a painkiller. They didn't have other painkillers that they have today. But when they gave that to Jesus, he wouldn't take it. No, he wanted all his faculties in his mind. He made seven statements of declaration, amen. But then, they, but then at the end, he said, I thirst. I thirst. And they lifted to him a sponge with, with wine vinegar. You know, you have red wine vinegar at home? Something like that, right? And he drank. And then he said, it is finished. He says he, he said that right after he drank that because everything had been fulfilled. I believe by doing that, he was saying, guess what, guys? I'm drinking this cup for you. I'm taking it, the wrath that you deserve. 
I'm dying for everybody. I'm, I'm thirsting. And this is a picture of him taking that cup. Amen? And he said, to tell us die. Paid in full. Paid in full. Your sins were paid in full on the cross. Amen? But just before that is when he instituted the Lord's Supper and he gave the cup. He said, take this in remembrance of me. Because if you accept the cup, if you accept what he did for you on the cross and, and dying and accepting the cup of wrath that you and I deserve, then you can drink from his cup, the cup of forgiveness, amen? amen. The cup of salvation. Let's stand up and as we pass out the bread and the cup of forgiveness.